Welcome. My name is Patrick Kern, and along with my parental responsibility avoidant friend Greg Hancock, we make up Quantitude. We are a podcast dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the completely irrelevant. In today's episode, we have an in-depth conversation with Derek Briggs from the University of Colorado about his new book that explores the fascinating and at times uncomfortable history of measurement and the people who helped develop the quantitative methods we still use today. Along the way, we also discuss outsourcing parenting, where do babies come from, hearing colors, teacher strikes, blowing things up, Morgan Freeman, penguins, driving students nuts, horrible people, quantitative imperatives, and cutting bait. We hope you enjoy today's episode. So Patrick, I don't know if you remember, it might have been season one, it might have been season two. Do you remember when I told you that I outsourced all conversations that had to do with procreation to Goldie around those matters? Oh yeah, that was unambiguously (laughs) clear. Well, I was at a friend's house and I realized that they had outsourced it too, but actually both of the parents had outsourced it to a book. I don't know if you've ever seen this book or if your kids had it. It's called, Where Did I Come From? It's a cartoon book that illustrates how babies are made. Is that something that you have seen? No, maybe I should have. And maybe that would explain some things to me personally, but just a sec. What was it called again? No, 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 no. Don't write it down. The holidays are coming up. But this book takes you through all of the gory details in really, really cute cartoon ways. It's really well done. And that reminded me of today. You know, a lot of times I just hang on for the ride with these openings (laughs) and kind of roll with it. And I have a pretty Uh good sense about halfway in where it's going. Uh Uh-huh. You got nothing? I got nothing. (laughs) This summer, you and I did a very calculated, well-planned out three episodes specifically around the history of our field. The where did I come from of measurement and stat. Despite the LSD... Yeah, in the summer of love. Yeah, I have a vague memory. I also remember hearing colors. I remember that purple was very soothing and red Uh was quite loud. Right. That's probably my most salient memory. But yeah, I'll go with that. So I think of those three episodes as really the where did I come from version of our field. Just like that book is way better than I could ever explain, you and I routinely find people who can do things way better than you and I can. Oh, it's the subcontract model of the podcast. When you need expertise, go out back and try to find someone. (laughs) All right. So now, can you connect the dots for me? Yes. All right. The woman has an egg. (laughs) Wait, what was the second part? I'm so proud of you. So in the spirit of finding someone who does our job infinitely better than we do, we have a guest today. Our guest is going to be Derek Briggs. Derek got his degree with Mark Wilson at Berkeley back in 2002, and he has been on the faculty at University of Colorado at Boulder since 2003. He has wide-ranging expertise in measurement, things like item response theory, Roche modeling, progression models, and currently, are you the founding director of of the center at Boulder? That's right, yeah. So the center is CADRE, C-A-D-R-E, and as anybody out there knows, you start with an acronym and then you just pick whatever words work there. What does CADRE stand for? Center for Assessment, Design, Research, and Evaluation. We literally had a $50 contest for the grad students. Uh-huh. Yeah, $50, whoever could come up with a, it, it, it had to have the word center in it, something about assessment, something about evaluation. And so the D and the R were just there to fill it out. 
<laughs> Derek is professor in the research and evaluation methodology program there in the School of Education. You are also former editor of EMIP, Educational Measurement Issues and Practice, which is a very nice go-to journal for our field and associated with National Council on Measurement and Education. And drumroll, please, have you been inaugurated yet as the president <laughs> of NCME? Has that happened? Yeah, it happened. Uh, there was a passing of the torch in uh, our virtual conference in June. <laughs> We're so excited to have you here. If I could trouble you, just give a little bit of your own origin story. You know, what forces led you to where you are now? Very few people grow up as a child thinking, you know, I'd like to be a psychometrician. (laughs) As a kid, I was really lucky in the sense that I had parents who really valued education. And it was just something that I always took as a really important part of my life. I was really fortunate in high school. I attended a great high school in Southern California. I studied really hard in high school, maybe too hard. But one thing that I really appreciated in high school was the quality of my teachers and how much they seemed to care about what I was doing. Somewhere around the time of my senior year, my teachers went on strike. I didn't really understand why my teachers, who I thought were so spectacular, Mm -hmm. were on strike. And I remember going to a school board meeting and essentially explaining why they didn't know what the hell they were doing. Why weren't they paying (laughs) the teachers what they should be paid? And I was given a very patronizing, son, you don't really understand this. Mm -hmm. Come back when you understand the financial constraints that we're under. And I vowed, I honest to God, at that time, I was like, I'm never going to let somebody talk to me like that where I come Mm -hmm. into a situation where I don't know all the background information. Mm. And I want to sort of make sure that whatever I do in my education as I go forward, that I'm always ready for these kinds of conversations. And so that I speak knowledgeably about these kinds of issues in education. So already in high school, I really cared a lot about education and teaching and learning. So I went on to an undergraduate degree at Carleton College, did an undergraduate degree in economics. And there I developed some strength and quantitative methods and interest really in microeconomics. And I thought I would go into economics. And then I did a research assistant position at the Congressional Budget Office in Washington, D.C. If you want to go into economics, you better really love mathematics. I mean, really love mathematics to the point where you're better off being just a theoretical mathematician starting economics than you are actually being interested in more applied work. I wasn't quite sure whether that was the commitment I was prepared to make in an economics graduate program. And secondly, I was already then a little concerned that economists sort of take measurement a little bit too much for granted. So I ended up applying to graduate school of education at UC Berkeley. And it was there that I took a class with Mark Wilson and learned a little bit about, for the first time, really, educational measurement and how to think about psychometrics. And that really opened some doors for me. So that's how I entered as a graduate student into a focus in psychometrics. I took econometrics. I also took a lot of applied statistics with some fabulous people at Berkeley. At the same time, I've really gone deep in trying to understand psychometrics. And I sort of see myself as somebody who's always tried to build bridges between those who are doing applied work and those who are thinking foundationally about measurement. Who was your favorite teacher in high school? Wow, that's a tough one. I had a great physics teacher. His name was Mr. Groves. And I liked him because he used to blow stuff up and set things on fire. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So shout out to Mr. Groves. Well, the reason we have Derek here is not just because he's a very bright, interesting guy. Derek has a book that came out recently, just mid-November, Historical and Conceptual Foundations of Measurement in the Human Sciences, Credos and Controversies. It's a Routledge book. I would just like to read a brief introduction so people will get an overview of what's going on in this book. I love it. We actually need to get a narrator, Patrick. We haven't discussed this. We need a narrator for things of this gravity. As long as it's not a monkey, I'm fine with it. (laughs) 
Can you guys get Morgan Freeman? That would be the best, I think. <laughs> there is a mysterious ritual that dates back thousands of years. No living creature has survived it, except the penguin. <laughs> Historical and Conceptual Foundations of Measurement in the Human Sciences explores the assessment and measurement of non-physical attributes that define human beings, abilities, personalities, attitudes, dispositions, and values. The proposition that human attitudes are measurable remains controversial, as do the ideas and innovations of the six historical figures, Gustav Fechner, Francis Galton, Alfred Binet, Charles Spearman, Louis Thurstone, and S.S. Stevens at the heart of this book. Across 10 rich, elaborative chapters, and I can vouch for that, they absolutely are, readers are introduced to the origins of educational and psychological scaling, mental testing, classical test theory, factor analysis, and diagnostic classification, and to controversies spanning the quantity objection, the role of measurement in promoting eugenics, theories of intelligence, the measurement of attitudes, and beyond. Graduate students, researchers, and professionals in educational measurement and psychometrics will emerge with a deeper appreciation for both the challenges and the affordances of measurement in quantitative research. So we are really delighted to have you join us today so that maybe we can unpack this a little bit and have you correct us on, <laughs> on what we did over the summer. As a starting point, Derek, I loved your opening prologue describing how this really started as a chapter in another book and became a book itself. Tell us a little bit about how that happened. A lot of the research I've been doing and the way I would describe sort of my research agenda is that I'm interested in the measurement and evaluation of student learning. But so much of this hinges on measurement and then growth modeling combined. And I had done some research focusing on this intersection of psychometrics and growth modeling that I thought wasn't properly appreciated. There are those who really were focused on the growth modeling aspect and taking the measurement for granted. And then the folks who were doing the measurement weren't sort of very appreciative of what this was going to be used for, that it was really being used to make inferences about growth. So I wanted to write a book that brought those two together, and I still might someday. <laughs> but mm -hmm. as I started writing the start of that book, I thought, well, I need to first establish some foundations of what we mean by measurement and different perspectives people have on what measurement means and how we understand it. And what was supposed to be maybe half of the chapter kept getting longer and longer. <laughs> <laughs> and as I started focusing on psychophysics, I realized that that was in itself. I needed to write almost the whole chapter to understand it myself. Mm -hmm. And so that's how this book really came to be. I guess it's part of my nature that until I really feel like I understand something, it's hard for me to let it go. And I wrote this book in part because I needed to fill some gaps in my own education. There were things that I think were fundamental to what I claim to be doing that I don't think I sufficiently understood. Part of writing this book was my own educational process. That is really the best part of our job when we learn so much from the projects that we're involved in, right? That we come away with a better understanding of things or maybe even changing our mind about certain things as we get into it. In addition to that, it is being in a field where we can write the textbook that we wish we had. Derek, you are trained at the highest levels possible. Is this filling a void that didn't exist in your own training? I think that's right. It came sort of a little bit of a surprise to me that essentially seven years in as a professor, I went to a conference that was being held at the University of Maryland. And the topic of it was the concept of validity. And I heard 
somebody speak there, Joel Michelle, who was really raising some very critical commentary on the profession and essentially claiming, for lack of a better term, that psychometricians are in some sense pathological because they make essentially this quantity assumption that everything about measurement involves quantity and that psychological attributes are all quantitative. And that was very defensive. Things that he was referencing in that talk were things I just never read. Mm -hmm. I just didn't know about them. And I thought, I should know more about this. There's more to the foundation of the field than what I've learned about. Because I think a lot of us that learn psychometrics in particular, the starting point is really all the things that have been written starting in like the 60s. Mm-hmm. That's where we date the start of psychometrics. And there is a lot that was going on before that, that I don't think we all understand that well. So yeah, a lot of writing this book was filling in the gaps for me. There's a lot like going back to that school board meeting. And once again, there I was at this conference with somebody talking and he was talking about stuff I didn't know about. And I thought that's ridiculous. Like, I need to know more. And I need to be able to to have an educated conversation with this guy. My dad was a high school history teacher. And one of his big things was don't read what other people have written about historical Mm -hmm. figures. Read the historical figures themselves. And one thing I love about your book is as you delve into each of these characters, you have extensive quotes from the primary resources. The perspectives that we have about particular people, it's not only a century-long game of telephone where you whisper something to the person next to you, to the person next to you, to the person next to you. But it's also filtered through the zeitgeist of whatever current environment you're in. One of the things I really tried to do in the book is it was almost like me trying to to say, like, how could I write the guidebook that I was looking for? Because what I'm not trying to say is that you should just take my word for it. I mean, I obviously have my own perspective after reading all these figures and sort of where they fit in and, and the way that they've thought about measurement, how it's a contribution to what we do today, and ways in which parts of the ideas that some of these figures had were problematic. But what I'm trying to do is not say, just take my word for it. I actually think that there's some value in each one of them. I try at the end when I write to say, here, Here's where you should start. If you want to understand in particular Thurstone, boy, there's three articles from Thurstone that everybody should read, frankly. Like, I mean, like they're from the 1920s, but they're mm. still brilliant, you know, and his economy of language, but so clarity. And so what I'm trying to do in the book is not only give people an insight to what these people were thinking about and what motivated them, but also to give them their own starting point so that they could go back and explore these and understand these in their own right. We're going to use the word measurement a lot in this conversation. Actually, we already have historically. Historically, there have been a lot of different meanings attached to that word. What do you mean by measurement and how has it evolved throughout the period that you've been studying? The way Michelle would cast it is to say that if you go to about the mid-19th century, around the time when figures like James Clerk Maxwell, Lord Kelvin, were at the mm-hmm. time trying to make a case for the importance of having a system of units centimeters, grams, seconds, that the basis for how we think of physical measurement should be establishing those as primary units. Mm -hmm. Around that time, when they were really laying the seeds for the international system of units, I think that there really wasn't much debate about what was meant by measurement. At that time, you just said there's sort of a classical definition of measurement. You can connect all the way back from Euclid to Aristotle. And that definition would be that measurement is the discovery or estimation of the ratio of a magnitude of a quantity to a unit of the same quantity. That's what we mean by measurement. Mm -hmm. I think there's some sense in which it's still the case today that when children first learn about measurement in elementary school, it's in that sense that they come to understand it. We learn about measurement through sort of canonical physical properties like the measurement of length or the measurement of weight. When we measure, we have some sort of a reference standard. 
And what we're comparing is the attribute we care about to that reference standard. We need to think about the appropriate scale with which you're measuring. Is need to be at a larger scale, a smaller scale. That's what most children, I think, typically first learn about. And then they learn there's some sense, perhaps, of uncertainty that when they do repeated measures that they may not get the same answer. But this is all, I think, within the context of this classical definition of measurement. I think an argument can be made by the time you move forward in history, about 100 years, Mm -hmm. from mid-19th century to mid-20th century, that if you were to ask people in our line of work, they would give the sort of definition that I've actually heard Patrick give on an earlier episode. And they would take the definition from S.S. Stevens. And they would say that, well, measurement is the assignment of numerals to objects or events according to rules. And so if you place those two definitions side by side, it's rather interesting because one of the things you'll notice in the Stevens definition is that there are certain things that have fallen away. We've sort of lost the idea of magnitudes that you're measuring relative to some reference standard. Even the word quantity is no longer part Mm -hmm. of the definition. What Stevens was doing was separating those things that were in measurement into two different pieces, that there is first this aspect of numeric assignment, and then sort of as a separate thing, which actually where he devoted most of attention, was to the question of scale properties. But that's disappeared from the definition. And so when people simply define what measurement is relative to that definition, it's easy to lose the second half in which he had an entire program of research around scale properties. I think much of my book is about saying, how did we get from this understanding of measurement in the classical sense to this understanding of measurement in the psychological sense. Mm-hmm. What were the key epochs along the way that led to, I think, this broadened definition of measurement where we're now taking from properties that we thought were more spatiotemporally observable to things that are not so spatiotemporally observable, human abilities and attributes and the like. That's sort of what I'm trying to get to is is tracing between those two definitions. Now, I think that there are two purposes for what measurement is trying to achieve. And it's very difficult to settle on a one sentence definition, but here are two purposes that I think are really important. The first one is that I think when we do measurement, what are we trying to accomplish? We're trying to reduce our uncertainty about the quantity value of a targeted attribute, number one. So first purpose is to reduce uncertainty. A second one is to report a quantity value that can be generalized beyond the specific and local implementation of the measurement procedure. So those to me are the two purposes. One, it's uncertainty reduction. I think that the way that most people think of uncertainty reduction in psychometrics is in terms of measurement error. But I actually mean uncertainty reduction in two different ways. I think that's one of them. We'd like to reduce uncertainty due to measurement error, Mm -hmm. but also uncertainty due to our own theoretical understanding of the attribute we're trying to measure. That's a different form of uncertainty. That would actually probably fit more into what people typically call validity theory. Do we actually know that we're measuring what we think we're measuring? Both of those to me fit into uncertainty. And I think that the second part, this idea that you want to report something that could be generalized, I think that would fit in the language when people speak about invariance, the idea of of finding something that's invariant to different implementations. So those to me are the two purposes. Mm -hmm. If I had to pick a one sentence definition, I've kind of played with this a lot. Like I do this in a a class that I've taught. There's a semicolon. I know there's a semicolon. (laughs) Yeah. So so I actually, in, in teaching, I taught a seminar class and I actually, as an exercise at the beginning of the class, I had the students sit down and I said, write your definition of what measurement. Mm -hmm. I think it's a good activity because it's really fascinating to see what people leave in and what they leave out. At the time I provided mine. And then we did a lot of the readings that are in my book. And at the end, I had to come back to it and say, would you now change the definition you give to measurement? At the time, here was the one sentence definition that I provided. 
Measurement is a controlled procedure that culminates in a reproducible numeric estimate of a quantitative attribute. That might be a definition that I like because it gets at, I think, some important ideas that Mm -hmm. one, I like the idea of a controlled procedure because I think one of the things that's really important to think about when you're doing measurement, you're thinking very carefully about what are the things you're trying to isolate? What are the things you're trying to leave out? So this idea that we should bring in the idea of experimentation as being fundamental to what we do in measurement is an important one. So I was trying to find a way to bring experimentation into the definition. The other idea is this idea of reproducibility that I think gets more at this invariance conception. The part that's a little bit perhaps controversial is my last part of my definition was the, a numeric estimate of a quantitative attribute. Mm-hmm. And so there's still some question about what is your delimiter on what is and is not a quantitative attribute? Am I saying, as one would in the classical definition, that it has to be a continuous quantity? This is Michelle's critique, is that measurement only pertains to quantities that can be thought of as a continuous quantity. So if the attribute is not a continuous quantity, like if it's something that's like a heterogeneous order, you wouldn't speak of measurement in that context. I'm still thinking my way through. Like my perspective is sent right now is that I'm willing to say that what we would call an ordinal attribute, that measurement can still apply because you Mm -hmm. can still have a reference standard. It just doesn't have to be a single unit. In your definition of measurement where you had two parts, one of the parts had to do with validity though. One of the parts had to do with your own uncertainty around that. And it feels to me like that would still apply here, that even if a phenomenon is inherently categorical, if it's not a measurement issue in the first sense, that still there would be some room for your definition to apply there. I think if the question, could they be ordered categories? I think yes. Hmm. I'm in a place at present where I would like to distinguish between activities of classification and activities of measurement. In examples in which we really are just thinking of nominal categories, I'm not sure if it's sensible to think of that as a measurement activity. But there's some disagreement on that. I have a colleague who wrote another terrific book that just came out, David Torres Irabara. Here's his definition of measurement. Measurement is an activity of classification, ordination, or quantification of a set of elements according to a model of a relevant attribute in service of a larger goal. I think that's also a fine definition, but it's broadening what measurement Mm -hmm. means. I've always been interested in questions of growth and student learning. Growth is another great example where we have a physical metaphor in mind. We think literally Mm -hmm. of a student growing in height. If you're thinking about growth in that way, you have to be answering questions about magnitude. Mm -hmm. The big challenge in educational measurement is how do we make sensible statements about magnitude? Because I think that's one of the great challenges that we all face. You see these effect size units and nobody knows what the hell that means. We say that we found an effect size of 20% of a standard deviation. It's not clear that people have a good understanding of what that actually means in a real way. So to me, the challenge of measurement is to help provide tools to better understand magnitudes. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, that's why I would probably leave out nominal classification from that aim. I love Stevens and I love that paper and his 46 science paper is just a joy to read. It's colloquial. It's funny. Two things stand out for me on that is first, that very classic definition of measurement that you have heard me say before because I like it so much. That's only on the first page of the paper. A lot of times people forget you turn that page. And there's some really deep stuff in there of developing the nominal ordinal interval ratio scales and the typologies. The other thing that I find so interesting is in 1946, that's almost been 80, 
90 years after a lot of this other stuff has developed that led up to that. So it's kind of funny us looking back 46's old history, but he was actually putting a capstone on what might have been 75 years before that. And that's what I love that you bring out in your book. You have this cast of characters of what led up to Stevens. You have half a dozen people who you really focus on. Why those six? I certainly could be more than the six. I will say at some point, the book had to end. Get busy living or get busy dying. That's damn right. I do think that there are other people that certainly merited their own chapters. And I don't think that necessarily these are the canonical six, but I do think that it's the case that these six people that I'm focusing on really do bring up all the kinds of concepts that we regularly discuss when we think about measurement in the human sciences. And I think they make for interesting contrasts. For example, if you are going to write about Galton, and you're going to write about Spearman, you have to write about Binet because Binet, I think, makes such a fascinating contrast and his perspective on measurement was so different from his goals for measurement than the goals for measurement that Spearman and Galton had, for example. And then when you write about Fechner and sort of the origin story of where people thought that the measurement of human attributes, how that could be done using probability theory and experimentation, it's very hard to do that without talking about Lewis Thurstone because Lewis Thurstone mm-hmm. is the person who sort of reconceptualized that work. And there's one person I think deserves his own book. It's Lewis Thurstone, because I think he's, for me, a bit of a hero because his work has been so remarkable. When it comes to Spearman, you have to talk about because Spearman ultimately is the grandfather, so to speak, of so many things that we do in psychometrics and in structural equation modeling, father of factor analysis, and as also the unintended father of classical test theory. I just think it's fascinating that all the tools of classical test theory was something that Spearman came up with, but then had no interest in really. (laughs) You highlight that arguably two of his most important contributions, he didn't seem to care that much about. Spearman is a nexus point for so many other people. It all then leads back to the reason I sort of have to end with Stevens is because, again, part of my motivation was to try to unpack where Stevens came from and what led to this broadening of how people were discussing and talking about measurement. What was controversial and still is somewhat controversial about Stevens' definition was just bringing together what was already starting to happen in sort of the zeitgeist. But there was a certain amount of self-interested actions that Stevens was taking. He was covering himself a little bit because what he was essentially doing is in a very kind of shifty way. If you had to point to somebody at the time who was considered authority for how to think about measurement, it would have been Norman Campbell. And so Mm -hmm. Stevens was taking parts of Campbell's definition of measurement, but he was not taking the parts that made things difficult for him (laughs) because he had done this work that had led to the Ferguson committee, where they had this committee to weigh in on whether the measurement of psychological attributes was something that could be thought about in the same way as physical measurement. And it had this committee of psychologists and physicists And Norman Campbell was part of that committee and was staunchly against the idea that you could have measurement in the way that Stevens was thinking because he had already developed this zone scale for auditory sensations. And so he had some self-interest in being able to say, well, 
they couldn't agree, but let me show you how Mm -hmm. you could have this more encompassing understanding of measurement, which he developed. So Campbell's definition of measurement was measurement is the assignment of numerals to represent properties. And then Mm -hmm. later he amended that with assignment of numerals to represent properties in accordance with scientific laws. Stevens dropped out those parts. I love all the little side stories that help to paint a richer picture of these people. Patrick and I, being the incredibly simple creatures that we are, we tend to paint more cartoonish pictures of these people. One of the reasons is that that's just kind of who we are. When we went through the history, for example, in a number of other episodes where some of these figures would come up and other people as well, we sort of had this standard line that we would say, horrible person, completely (laughs) horrible person, as though our field is littered with people who are completely horrible people. I don't think that any of us is really defined by the best of us or the worst of us. I think everyone is a bit more complex than that. But some of the people that you address and some other people outside really are hard to talk about. How did you approach that? This was really a challenge for me, especially the Mm -hmm. point in time we are today, where I think Mm -hmm. that over the past few years, if we didn't already know, we were in a time of social change where there needed to be a reckoning with racial and social injustice. We're in that time. All these kinds of things that have been happening and that we are more and more aware of as a society, that things need to be changed. This was coming at a time when I was finishing the writing of this book, and I thought to myself, do we need a book that's focusing on six white men and the roles they've played in measurement? If you think about one figure in particular that's controversial and quite problematic, that would be Francis Galton. Mm -hmm. To be sure, I experienced some real difficulties in thinking about how to write about Galton, because his role as the founding father of eugenics is something that created absolutely horrific consequences Mm -hmm. by the time in particular we get to World War II. And so his connection with eugenics is one that makes it very difficult to speak to the other great accomplishments he's had. From my own perspective, what I try to do is to place Galton in his historical context. I think it's important to appreciate in Galton's approach to thinking about why he wanted to do measurement. I think of this as something that we need to think about. Well, were there other people at the time that Galton was doing his work that had different perspectives on measurement and different perspectives on the role that measurement could be used for the betterment of society? Instead of simply viewing Galton through current contemporary lens, I try to cast him in this book in contrast to some of the other figures at the same time. This is, by the way, an approach that in some of the other historical work that I've read that's treated Galton, it seems to be a very similar tactic. Uh, For example, Raymond Fancher, who's written some really Mm -hmm. great work and is one of the authoritative biographers of Galton, he does a very similar approach where he's trying to contrast Galton to who came before Galton was also still a contemporary, John Stuart Mill. Mm -hmm. And John Stuart Mill had a very different perspective on the measurability of human attributes and the question of the influence and environment on human attributes than Galton did. I also focus as a contrast to the work of Alfred Binet and the perspective that he took on measurement and what we were trying to accomplish with measurement. Where things were challenging here in, in thinking about Galton is why did he want to measure? He was really interested in, through the publication of his half-cousin Charles Darwin's book on the origin of species, Galton became really fascinated with the concept of heredity and really believed that heredity applied not just to physical characteristics, but to psychological characteristics of humans. And so his perspective was that since we now had compelling evidence of natural selection, his view was that it was a social 
social responsibility of those who could influence policy to think about policies that could be done for the betterment of the human race. And this is how he used the word race to speak of humanity, that he had to think about how could measurement play a role in helping humanity. And his perspective on this was that since both physical and psychological characteristics he believed were heritable, if you could measure psychological characteristics in the same way that you could measure physical characteristics, then you had the ability to actually track and to measure at an early age physical and psychological characteristics and then study to see whether later in life those with certain characteristics were more likely to be successful and the like. What I'm describing should not sound that different from what a lot of people in research do to the present day, that people are still interested in that sort of method of getting information, measuring things about human beings, and seeing whether those things that we measure are predictive of later outcomes. What makes Galton different, to be sure, is that his perspective on what you would learn from the measurement was that you could enact policies in the form of what's known as positive eugenics to create incentives for the state to get certain types of people to marry and procreate and to disincentivize others from marrying and procreating. And thereby, you would improve the genetic stock. And that was where he coined the term eugenics, good stock by that sort of a process. And so that's tough, right? Knowing where that went in terms of how that was taken up in the book, I try to take this head on how it was taken up in the United States in terms of actual policies that led to sterilization in the United States really difficult to read about. Virginia passed a sterilization act. It was upheld by the Supreme Court eight to one. So you could see over time where Galton's advocacy for eugenics led in the way that it was taken up in the United States. One thing that I found to be the case when I was reading about Galton is that it is still the case that he did some really ingenious things. And he discovered some methods that I think have no direct connection to eugenics. They can be divorced from the context of eugenics. The actual tools that he invented as a way to think about how you might actually gain some insights about psychological characteristics, how you could study them through the use of regression and correlation, which he discovered quite famously. These are still things that are valuable to learn about. And there are some insights we can gain there about where they came from that I try to uncover in the book. I'm quite sure that Galton himself was not setting out with the idea that where his work was going to lead was Nazi Germany. Galton himself was actually a very complicated figure that had his own demons that he was battling from, I think, a very challenging youth where his father died when he was still in college. As He was battling, one of his biographers describes his own youthful indiscretions that had led him to question his own religious faith. There are all kinds of things I think that Galton was grappling with, and I think that he lacked a certain amount of empathy for people that were less fortunate than him. Mm fascinating, but also difficult to write about. I'm a history fan. Part of it is I enjoy just putting myself back in a prior time, but part is how does what has happened in some way inform where we are now and where we're going? Right now, I'm teaching factor analysis. This morning, before we met on the Zoom call, I was talking about maximum likelihood common factor model. With what you know and in your own position in teaching, what should a student today know about the historical context and the individuals as human beings as they also learn about the techniques that are so important to what we are as a science? 
I think first and foremost, the lesson to be learned from figures like Galton, Spearman, really every single figure in that book is there is no sense in which the science we do is this purely objective craft in which we descend from on high. The question is there, the data is provided, and then the answer emerges from the application of a particular mathematical model. The notion that is what you can do in a factor analysis, of course, is absurd. You enter these with your own assumptions, biases, perspectives. And this was true really of all these people. When you actually see, they were influenced, all these figures, by their own childhoods, by their relationships with their families, by the experiences that they had, their attempts to find their place in the world. All of this influenced the kinds of questions they asked and even the way that they developed some methods. I think what you can say though, in most cases, as we move along in time, Galton was really pioneering very much and trying to throw out methods for the first time to show here's how you could do measurements. Here's how this might apply if you make use of the normal distribution. Here's a way we could get around certain problems that we face in the measurement of psychological mm -hmm. attributes. But as we go forward in time, you start to see more and more figures. And I think Spearman is someone I would count along this and certainly Thurstone, where they're starting to put forward methods that can be falsified. And they're putting forward an approach where it allows other investigators to come along and critique what's going on and raise questions and debate. And Spearman, more than anybody, loved debate. When Spearman entered the work on factor analysis, he was absolutely coming at it from a Galtonian perspective. And really, he was actually trying to lend some credence to a hypothesis that Galton had had about the nature of intelligence. But over time, Spearman developed his own theory and his own more elaborate model of human cognition, of which the two-factor theory was just one piece of this larger theory of human cognition. And over time, he was very willing to engage with others about alternate theories. And in fact, his own theories changed over time. He did modify them when he was faced with this conflicting evidence. So I think understanding that sort of social cultural context in which these methods came about helps to dispel this idea that what we're learning is you apply the algorithm, you do steps A, B, and C, and out pops the scientifically justified answer. This again gets to sort of our black eye in psychology, which is I think there was a period in time when these methods were very new and being applied in the context of intelligence testing in particular, they were used as though measurement guaranteed scientific objectivity. And I think understanding on the one hand, we should strive for the idea of measurement, establishing something that generalizes, that is a goal, something that is invariant. But the idea idea that as part of a larger enterprise, using the terminology of measurement then is an easy stepping stone towards claims of objectivity. That's something we have to dispel. Getting inside, not just what did these figures think measurement was, but how did they actually do it? I have teenage kids and over dinner, they will very appropriately give me a hard time about the views and beliefs and norms we had when I was their age. But what they don't like is when I say, be careful because your teenagers are going to be saying the same thing about where you are right now and think about what is that that they're going to be giving you a hard time. And what that makes me think about is what are we doing right now? That in 75 years, when some kid comes up and looks at the works of Briggs et al. and Hancock et al., that they're going to say, wow, 
Look at what these guys were doing. Is there something now that you would envision in the future someone might hold us responsible for? I mean, I think there's an obvious target in that, and that's the excitement over data mining and the idea that now we're in an era where it's so much easier to get data. Spearman's work where he discovered fact analysis, like 20 students, <laughs> you, know, like, you know, and getting that sample of 22 took a ton of work. We can get 2,200,000 million cases, you know, from, from the internet, like the ability to actually get data, bring it into R and do some really cool things with it. And so we have a whole generation of really talented students that are learning. Maybe they're really good with math. They're really good with coding. They don't necessarily have a theoretical foundation. And the idea that somehow the data can speak for itself is problematic to me. The idea that if we just have enough data, we can model our way to a practically useful results, I think is a recipe for the same kind of problem that we experienced 100 years ago. Because remember, if you're justifying what you're doing on the basis of some, some practical utility, well, practical utility is a subjective notion. And what's practically useful for one person is not necessarily useful for the other. If you are doing things that are theory-free and you're just trying to apply algorithms to learn something because of a justification that's based on practical utility, we have to wonder down the line what sort of unintended consequences might come up. Things that we don't appreciate. I think one of the things that was really true, whether you agreed with the theory or not, nobody was theory free in the period of time that I'm covering in this book. Mm. These were people when they thought about measurement, they had real theories about the attributes they were trying to measure. And they put forward those theories and those theories could be falsified. And I think that one of the things that I think is so important is this idea that there really is a value proposition around measurement. I really do believe that. I think we get so caught up in what is wrong in trying to measure too much. And I agree with that, by the way, that sometimes we try to measure too many things. First, I think the value proposition is that measurement should first and foremost be a process of discovery. And to me, that's exciting. Measurement is not definitional. You're not defining something to measure. You're trying to discover something through measurement. This is something that worries me, even in structural equation modeling. Sometimes people get items to define a scale and it's just defined. I have these items and yeah, they might be doing a factor analysis, but in their heads, the arrows are actually pointing from the items to the construct, not the other way around. And so in that case, where's the discovery? If measurement really is not definition, but it's discovery, you're not actually discovering much if that's the way you're thinking about it. I think to do measurement well, it requires a substantive theory about the target attribute that's amenable to empirical investigation. You have to have some substantive theory. And one of the things that worries me, in particular with data science, is that there may not be a substantive theory. The idea is that you can just from the data itself do something without having any real theory for what is an underlying attribute attribute or attributes that you would care about. The other two pieces that I think are really important here, I've already mentioned the idea that what we try to do about measurement is reduce uncertainty. And I think that's something that in today's world, people that do work in data science appreciate, at least the idea of minimizing measurement error. One thing that's sort of gotten lost is this idea, this dates back to Stevens separating the definition of measurement and scale properties. I think we've totally lost the idea that measurement results hinges upon having a meaningful unit of measurement. I just think that thing has gotten lost a thing that worries me a lot right now is we have these dimensionless units because we express things in these relationships between correlations. And so there's sort of like an implicit standard deviation unit, but nobody really knows what that means. And we've kind of lost it as something that we would care about. The last piece to this that I think is a real thing we need to worry about going forward, measurement beyond the value proposition of being something about discovery, measurement is aspirational. It's something we aspire to do. And so it requires 
an abundance of humility. If you're going to attempt it as a process of discovery, you have to be willing to accept the possibility that you fail, mm-hmm. that there are some things in the world, contrary to Thorndike's credo that I discussed in my book, not everything that exists can be quantified. We have to have some humility. How would you know <laughs> when you fail? If you aren't willing to admit that, then again, you could run into some serious problems in the future. Given all the thoughtful things that you've just said about discovery and aspiration, and then the knowledge that you've gained throughout the journey of writing this book, how does that help you think about your new role as president of the National Council on Measurement and Education? Does it help inform your agenda or the way you approach this position? When I started writing this book, I almost wanted to write the book at first to say, here's what we're screwing up and here's what we're doing wrong. (laughs) People are adopting this ridiculously broad definition of measurement and it's allowing too many things in. We actually don't have a good enough basis to know when we're not doing a good job. If you loosen the boundaries of measurement to include everything, then everybody gets to appropriate the terminology of measurement and that's worrisome. Mm Now, I do sort of believe that's true. At the same time, what I've discovered is there are different ways to theorize about measurement and to operationalize what you mean by measurement. It's not necessarily the case that one has to be superior to the other. So I'm trying to be a little bit more open-minded that people can approach the concept of measurement from different perspectives. As the president of NCME, I've actually convened a task force where we're asking the question, what is it we think are the foundational concepts that we want all our graduate students to know when they're learning about what we're calling educational measurement? And so I've gotten a group that's pretty diverse in their perspectives. And I just want us to have this conversation to say, we may actually not all agree on one definition of measurement, but could we put forward two or three that we think capture the variability in the ways that we think about measurement? And if you take a certain perspective on measurement, if you apply a certain definition, for example, Stephen's definition, are you internally consistent? That is, if you define measurement according to Stevens, are you prepared to do a program of research in establishing the properties of your scale? If you're only willing to take Stevens' definition because it affords you the terminology of measurement, without paying any attention to the questions of scale properties and what you can do with the scales, you're not being internally consistent. What I'd like to do with this task force is get us talking about what are the core concepts that we want graduate students to be exposed to and thinking about so they know how to have these conversations. If you go to NCME's website, you would search in vain for one definition of measurement there. It's sort of ironic to be the National Council on Measurement of Education and not have a definition for what that is supposed to mean. But I think we need to make progress. I think Psychometric Society has done a good thing in that regard. If you go to their website, you could ask, what does psychometrics mean? They actually have members that have written different definitions, or here's what we think psychometrics means. Here's a way of understanding what that is and where it comes from. I'd like to see us do something similar for NCME to talk more about what we think educational measurement entails. What are the tools you have to have to be able to do it? That's something with this task force I'm trying to make some progress on. That's critical because on the one hand, as an organization, we're trying to bring more people in. We want people more involved. People that care about education should also care about educational measurement. But I'm worried that in bringing more people in without the disciplinary foundation, we actually have people that are talking past each other. I'd like to see if I can remedy that. I drive my students nuts. Period. Full stop. (laughs) (laughs) That was it. That was my only point. Thanks, Patrick. I will ask them in a defense, in one sentence, tell me what you learned from your project. Do the same thing with your book. That's a good question. I reserve the right to revise this answer in the future, but... (laughs) 
<laughs> I very purposely picked that subtitle of credos and controversies just because I wanted to make the point that this question about measurement of psychological attributes has been controversial from the start and it continues to be controversial today. And I started with the concept of a credo because it really does date back to Thorndike's 1918 credo, whatever exists at all exists in some amounts. To know it thoroughly involves knowing its quantity as well as its quality. What did I learn in writing this book? Here's my amendments to Thorndike's credo. There's always something that can be learned in the attempt to measure a human attribute. And there's value in the attempt to learn that. Some attributes that exist cannot be measured very well. And one of the reasons they might not be able to be measured very well might have to be with our lack of a theoretical understanding of our inability to design really good instrumentation. The fact that we might have tremendous amounts of uncertainty due to our theoretical understanding or due to measurement error. It might also be that mathematical modeling is really problematic that goes along with our theory. These are all reasons why might conclude that some attributes exist but can't be measured very well. Given this, sometimes measurement can cause more harm than good. And so the starting point for measurement, we have to remember, is qualitative observation. And there may be some times where qualitative observation is as far as we can go. In our field, we have this quantitative imperative. We can't quantify. Well, God, we can't do regression. We can't do structural equipment. We have to quantify. One of the things that I just find so fast, there's no way out of this. Like this quantitative imperative is sort of built into the structures of what we do. Because even if you have something that is really a dichotomous variable, we still assume there's a quantity underneath it. Thorndike's credo is a version and instantiation of this quantitative imperative. I'm not trying to disparage all the work that we do in our field. I think that some attempts at measurement are fantastic, and I think they are worth the attempt. No project I've undertaken where I met with some people and we said, here is the attribute or the construct that we care about. How do we think about developing instrumentation that would elicit something about that? How do you write those kinds of questions? Who do we have to talk to? to think about this? How do we conceptualize a construct map for this idea? The activity of doing that is always valuable. I always learn something, but I've been on projects where it just doesn't go anywhere. We come up with it at the end. We just say, I don't think it makes sense in this case to try to go forward with this particular instrument. There might be some situations where I think that's a good thing. It's We've all probably been in this situation where you decide to take on a project, write up a manuscript, and then the reviewer comments come back and they suggest pretty intense revisions are required. And you're not sure where those revisions will take you. And you're not sure you're willing to invest the extra time. And so maybe the best decision is to say, I'm going to cut bait. And I think there might be some situations like that in the kinds of measurement work that we all do is if you haven't thought to yourself, what's the point at which I would need to cut bait? And you would say there never is such a point. Then is measurement really a discovery process or is just definitional? That would worry me. Cut bait, verb, third person, singular, simple, present, cuts bait. Present participle, cutting bait. Simple past and past participle, cut bait. Idiomatic, to give up on something in order to pursue something else. Is this an accurate restatement? Sometimes the best measurement is no measurement at all. Yeah, I think we have to be willing to accept that can be the case. There are situations in which it is better not to measure. We have to be self-aware of potential downstream negative consequences. When you apply the terminology of measurement, it implies a certain epistemic authority to what you're doing. And you have to be aware that if you're going forward with that language, 
you better be really committed to a program of research around it. it better not be a one-off thing that you're doing, but it actually is something you're committed to learning more about. The part that's driven me a little bit crazy in my own field in educational measurement is people are just not being transparent about what it is they really mean. There are people I think that if you ask them, in what sense are we doing measurement? They would say, well, there is no real attribute in that we're trying to measure in education. We don't even believe that exists. Instead, we have these test items we write. We think they're pretty good items. <laughs> you know, we think they tell us something about a student. The only reason we create a scale is to do equating. It's for comparability. We're going to give different test forms from year to year. And to make that happen, there's a number of items answered correctly. Because you want to avoid confusion, you have this intermediary step where you convert the number correct onto a scale. And then you can use some psychometric machinery to do equating and ensure that if one test form is harder than the other, you can make some adjustments from year to year. When you do that, you've completely left out the part of Stephen's work that focused on scale properties. There is an entire branch in psychometrics for equating, scaling, and linking. It's a book by Colin and Brennan. In that book, they just don't talk at all about this history. And there's nothing in that book that would establish how do you know if you have a scale that's interval or ordinal? That just doesn't even exist. They have this whole section on vertical scaling. Why would you do that? Well, the reason you do that is so you could say something about growth in terms of magnitude. That's why you create a vertical scale. That is the reason, because you want to say something about growth and you want to say something about magnitude. And if you want to say something about magnitude, then you better think that you have a hope at saying something that's on an equal interval scale. That might be hard to pull off, but there's no guarantee that you're successful in creating a scale with equal interval properties. And it does then go back to sort of what's your theory of the attribute? How does it relate to the psychometric model you're using? If by not answering the question, when is it interval? When is it ordinal? That means de facto, in effect, you're treating it as though it were ordinal. And the reason I say that is because what people will do with existing scales, it's fair game to do any sort of transformation at the scale you want. You could do linear, nonlinear, whatever you want. If you are willing to entertain all nonlinear transformations, by default, you're making an ordinal scale. So if that's the case, then like substantive research questions people have based on tests, like is variability increasing over time? Is growth accelerating or decelerating. People think those are answerable questions that psychometrics can help them with. But if the people who are doing the work behind the scenes really are only treating this like an ordinal scale, then you're misleading a lot of people about their inferences about variability. I can make variance increase, decrease, stay constant any way I want just by imposing different transformations on a scale. That's deeper why I went into this book was grappling with this conceptual problem. So maybe it's just a final wrap-up question is what part of growing up in either South Pass or at Berkeley led you to use the term cut bait? <laughs> <laughs> well, my father uh, grew up in the Upper Peninsula in Michigan, so I did go fishing with him on a lake. Okay, there you go. <laughs> You're either going to fish or cut bait. <laughs> Derek, thank you so much for this conversation. It's absolutely fascinating. We highly recommend that folks order themselves a copy of Derek's new book, Historical and Conceptual Foundations of Measurement in the Human Sciences, colon credos and controversies it's a routledge book and we're very excited to have this coming out and thank you again derek we're really really grateful for your time today thank you so much derek i had a great time thanks guys it was a real pleasure honor to be on your show all right thank you everyone for hanging out with us and we will talk to you next week all right bye-bye everybody thanks so much for joining us don't forget to tell your friends to subscribe to us on apple podcasts spotify or whatever they listen to while trying to avoid being ambushed by mariah carey songs you can follow us on Twitter, where we are at QuantitudePod, and visit our new and improved website, QuantitudePod.org, where you can leave us a message, find organized playlists and show notes, listen to past episodes, and other cool stuff. 
And finally, you can get cool Quantitude merch from Redbubble.com, where all proceeds go to DonorsChoose.org to help support low-income schools. You've been listening to Quantitude, the podcast that would inspire William of Ockham to return from the dead just to chase us with his razor. Today's episode has been sponsored by Fisher's LSD, the multiple comparison procedure that helps you statistically hallucinate. Whoa, yeah, bro, I think I see a significant effect too. And by the popular TV show Ted Lasso, renamed after focus groups didn't like the original title, Ted Regularized Regression. And finally, by Haywood Cases. Why worry about a little thing like negative variance estimates? I mean, your model converged, right? This is most definitely not NPR. NPR.